Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Last time we learned that the adoption we receive on account of Christ is truly an adoption that's beyond this age, as out of this world, literally. Uh, that we are adopted to share in the inheritance with Christ Jesus in the heavenly glory. When we think about that blessing, uh, we have to ask that question of why is it so important that Christ enters history as the catechism continues to move to this significance. Why is it so important that Christ has taken on the flesh? Um, this is what I appreciate about the catechism. We might wonder, is it really important that Christ takes on a human flesh? Is this something that's optional for us to believe? Uh, is this something that's essential? Why is this incarnation so essential for the Christian walk? And this is basically what the catechism is addressing. It's saying, well, let's take this up. Let's uh, talk about this reality and show that truly uh, Christ has to take on a true human flesh. And so as we consider this, we'll see first Christ's historic work and secondly Christ's continual work. And so let's begin with Christ's historic work. And when we look at question and answer 35, there's two truths that it wants us to affirm. First, Christ is from eternity, is not created. We've talked about this in Catechism, where you have, for instance, Arius, who says Christ is the first creation because the Father is lonely, so he's created in eternity. Other views is that Christ is such a faithful son that the Father just adopts him and says, he'll be my son. And so we have to affirm, even though it's beyond our, our true comprehension, that Christ is from all eternity. The other truth we have to affirm is that Christ takes on the flesh. He truly has um, our human flesh yet without sin. And so when we take these two truths together, the catechism's reminding us that this is what was promised from the Old Testament. So we think about Genesis 3.15. Christ the Redeemer's promised to come as a messianic warrior to trample the head of the serpent. And he comes through the line of the woman. We have, as we heard from Hebrews, that recollection that this uh, Son of God was to come through the line of David. This wasn't promised just in 2 Samuel uh, 7, but this is also Genesis 49, uh, verses 8 through 12 in the line of Judah. We also affirm that Christ is like our brothers and that he has the true flesh. And it's an important point. Uh, because when you think about this, when people start getting creative, this is where we get into problems. Uh, we think about, for instance, the docetic view, uh, where it's a flesh-like appearance or seems to be flesh. Uh, this is obviously problematic because Christ doesn't take on our real flesh. Uh, this is one of the heresies that has been in the ancient church. Uh, we have Menno Simmons at the time of the Reformation saying that basically Mary's an incubator uh, 
and Christ is formed by the Father with a special flesh from heaven that's not really human, not really angelic, but it's something else. And so when we start trying to address uh, these issues with our human creativity, we, we have problems. Uh, because as the catechism is going to go on to teach us, if Christ really doesn't take on a human flesh, we're still in our sins. Uh, the creature that offended God has never truly uh, been cut off as a covenant breaker. Now when we talk about the reality of Christ, this is something else that becomes uh, mind-boggling for us. Uh, because the catechism is also clear that while he takes on a flesh, a true human flesh, it's a human flesh without sin. So he is the true last Adam. Uh, Christ is human and divine, two natures joined together, yet without sin. Uh, something again that as we hear this, it's like the Trinity. We don't fully understand the Trinity. We don't fully understand the incarnation of Christ. And yet these are not optional things. This is what Scripture is teaching us. This is what Scripture is driving home. He's 100% God, 100% man. The two natures are inseparable, and yet the two natures are not intermingled. So we start talking about this, and yes, it becomes complex, but what I remind people is do we want a God that we can control? Uh, do we want a God that we can put in a box and, and we can make him do what we want him to do? It doesn't seem like he's very much of a God at that point. And so when we look at this and we go through Galatians uh, 3 and 4, and put Galatians 4.4 into context. We uh, deal with this letter, whereas Paul's traveling to this particular place, there's obviously some form of agitation that's going on. Uh, we have, for instance, in Acts 16, uh, Paul is traveling to Galatia, and by Acts 18, Paul is going back to Galatia after uh, we have you know, the situation with the Jerusalem Council and things going on, delivering this letter uh, and bringing the, these words. And so as he goes to Galatia, the mission in Acts 18 is that as Paul goes and, and, and he brings this letter, you know, we have Acts 15, Jerusalem Council, Acts 16, first trip, Acts 18, second trip. It seems that whatever's happened in Acts 16 and, and 18, in between there, something has transpired. And the place where we speculate with a very high probability is that there's Judaizers who have gone into this church. Uh, what these individuals believe is that you can have some of this Christian religion, uh, but all Gentiles are going to have to be circumcised to truly share in the blessings of Christ. Now, we, we know that Paul is not affirming this. Uh, for instance, we have in Galatians 3.1, the Apostle Paul says, Who has bewitched you? So clearly, something has, has changed their mind. Now, this language of bewitching that Paul uses is something that's used in black magic. Um, it's a superstition of giving the evil eye, that you give someone the right look, and all of a sudden that individual changes course. Now, I think Paul's doing that to say this is basically what these men are bringing to you. It sounds spiritual, sounds pious, but really, it's something that's just like the dark arts or black magic. It's not going to bring you closer to your God. Going on, we look at Galatians 5 verse 12. Uh, Paul makes a promise of the Spirit coming through faith. Uh, we read the fruits of the Spirit this morning. And that's a reminder of who we are as a people have transformed. It's not about circumcision. It's about the Spirit transforming us 
and bringing us and applying the blessings of Christ to us. We even have in the beginning of the letter the opening in 1 verse 7 where the Apostle Paul says, But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so clearly again there's this reminder that there's this placing this bondage upon the people. Galatians 5.10, he wishes that this individual would bear the penalty. So again, we, we don't know in this church if it's one individual who may have come, may have uh, been part of the circumcision party or a Judaizer and has stirred up some agitation in this church. We don't know if it's actually a group of individuals who have come and stirred up the agitation in the church. But whatever the case, it gives us the backdrop that Paul is laying out for us in terms of how we come to faith uh, and, and who we are in terms of this life. And so we can understand a bit of the persuasion of the argument. I mean, it certainly seems by the analogy that Paul uses with slavery that this isn't going back to the Old Testament case law. It's a Gentile situation or, or it's their uh, particular law in Rome or the, or the Roman Empire. And so... When you look at these individuals stirring up the trouble, and the Apostle Paul lays this out, we, we can understand them coming to Gentiles and saying, listen, when the Lord made the covenant of grace with Abraham, Genesis 15 confirms it, Genesis 17, there was circumcision there. We know that our God never changes. We know that the covenant of grace is, is, is a consistent covenant throughout Scripture. And so if this sign was good enough to designate Father Abraham, well, it's good enough to designate me as a child of God. Therefore, if you want to be part of this kingdom and profess uh, to truly be, be part of this identity and claim Abraham as your father, you better bear this sign. And so you can understand if you're a Gentile, you're, you're learning the Old Testament, you're learning this history and go, my goodness, it seems like this is a proper thing for us to do. And so when Paul comes and re-evangelizes his church, which is basically what Acts 18 seems to be teaching us, that he's come to strengthen the disciples. Uh, it seems that maybe even the, the church as a whole is kind of thinking, well, maybe this is the proper uh, procedure we need to follow to truly be identified as a child of God. And, and maybe we're out of line. I don't know. And so as Paul comes, he makes this argument in 4 verse 4. And he talks about in the fullness of time, which we'll cover more uh, later on, but in 4 verse 4 he says, sent forth his son. Now this is an important point. Most of the time when commentators debate, they ask, well, what does it mean it's the fullness of time? And we sort of skip over this clause of God sent forth his son. Now this is important because it doesn't say, God chose to adopt a son. It doesn't say the son that God has created or the son who became his son after taking on the flesh is the one who is redeemed. But the very fact that he sent forth his son means his son is there from eternity. And so the Apostle Paul, if anyone tells you, well, the Apostle Paul doesn't have an incarnational theology like we might have with John or some of the other writers. I say, well, that's not true. Right here, Galatians 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul is assuming a pre-existence of the Son. He's from eternity. 
He doesn't say he became his son in the fullness of time. He sent forth his son. So Christ's son is from all eternity. Now this is important because as, as we're laying the groundwork to what seems to be Judaizers or, or the circumcision party coming into this church stirring up trouble, trying to distract them from Christ, the Apostle Paul is affirming the substance of the argument, isn't he? Because if they say, well, listen, you know, the covenant of grace is consistent. This is how God has always worked. And circumcisions, Genesis 17, Father Abraham circumcises household. Therefore, we ought to circumcise our household. This is the precedent. Well, in Galatians 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul is actually setting a precedent even earlier than this. And he's saying, here's a precedent of his son from eternity who was promised to enter into history. So Paul is saying, let us begin with the very substance of what this promise is. Let's not start talking about how it's manifested in different times and how the Lord has worked in covenant history. And so right here, there is the assurance that Christ is from eternity. We can see already here by implication, Christ has taken on the flesh at a certain point in history to fulfill the Lord's promise. And so we already have this first point established right from Galatians 4, verse 4. But what about Christ's continual work? Again, this is something that becomes somewhat dangerous to say. Uh, we don't want to go to a place where we're saying that Christ's uh, continual work means that it wasn't finished or Christ has to enter back into history. When we talk about the continual work of Christ, we're speaking of Christ as being our continual mediator. And we'll get into this more with Hebrews. Um, because as I've mentioned before, so often we can think, well, Christ is in heaven, he's distant, he's absent from us, and we're here trying to just slough through this earth, trying to make the best of it, and hopefully we don't mess it up too badly, right? But the reality is, when we understand Christ as our mediator, it means he's the one who goes between God and us. And so you have basically the significance of a prophet and a priest functioning here. So a prophet, we normally think of the prophet coming from God, bringing the word of God to the people. So it's God coming to his people. A priest, we think of the priest coming from the people and bringing or, or going up to God. Uh, so it's a priest doing the work of making the people pure or making it so the people can enter into the Lord's presence. So Christ being the mediator, it's important to understand these things functioning. He comes from God with his mission He's the one who purifies us and brings us um, before God in the heavenly places. And so this go-between action is something that's continual. Now, it's not that Christ needs to be re-sacrificed. The point of this is that Christ continually represents us. It means Christ continually intercedes on our behalf. It means that Christ continually works in our lives to bring us to the very inheritance he has secured as the adopted sons for the sake of his faithfulness, as we learned last time. But also, the catechism reminds us not only just generally that, that he's a mediator, but the catechism reminds us that he covers my sin, his innocence, the sin in which I was conceived. And so this is something, when, when you ponder this, you realize this one-time work of Christ, we can think that, it's not going to last. We're, we're so conditioned and, and our life conditions us to think 
there's an expiration on everything. Go to the grocery store, expiration on food. Pull something out of the fridge and it's got all sorts of strange colors and growing weird things. Obviously, that's expired. You don't want to consume it. We're conditioned again and again and again that things wear out. They expire. So we don't think in terms of Christ's one-time work 2,000 years ago is sufficient. We don't think, well, it probably needs to be done maybe every 1,000 years, maybe every 2,000 years, whatever, but there's no way that one-time work is going to be sufficient. Well, the catechism is assuring us that one-time work is sufficient to take away all our sins, to continually cover us, and to be the one who sees to it that we are made worthy to dwell in the presence of God. And so if somebody says, well, why does Christ take on the flesh? Why does Christ enter history? Is to fulfill this work so that we can be purified. Now, in terms of Christianity, when people try and discredit Christianity, it's important as we look at Galatians and we understand this backdrop. What, what do people try and do? Oh, the doctrine of the Trinity, this seems absurd. Why would this God take on the flesh? It makes no sense. So they try and go into these particular doctrines that, that seem absurd and seem so unnecessary, and, and, and we try and pull it out of the whole of Scripture and say, see, this religious system can't be true. There's no way that, that this Christ guy was raised from the dead. But when you put this in the context of covenant history, and you put this in the context of Galatians 4 verse 4, when the Apostle Paul's mentioning the reality of this promise, he's saying there is an objective that God has sought to accomplish. And so if anyone tries to take apart our faith and say, well, this incarnation isn't really that essential, or God being the Trinity is not that essential, you say, wait a minute. What is the big picture of Scripture? Well, it starts with God creating man perfectly. Man rebels. As man rebels, this means a creature has offended there's an eternal consequence or eternal punishment needs to be taken away. We need Christ to enter history. This is promised in Genesis 3.15. Christ entering history is entering history for this purpose. And we may say, well, people don't really struggle with that. Well, this is where we turn back to Galatians. Isn't this one of the fundamental things they're struggling with? Can this Christ guy really do and fulfill these promises that the Apostle Paul and these other apostles are saying, is this really necessary? I mean, is Paul really orthodox in these statements? Is he really understanding the flow of Scripture? So you can understand the force of what's going on in this church. And so now the Apostle Paul mentions the reality of what God has done. Because again, there's that question. Circumcision was good enough for Father Abraham, Therefore, it ought to be applied to us. This is where the Apostle Paul is making his argument, but he's not appealing to the Old Testament case law. He's appealing to what you have in Roman law with the understanding of the guardian and the custodian. Now, the argument here is very important to understand. So what would happen, as we've mentioned before, that a custodian, a slave, uh, would take a child, it would raise this child, and teach this child how to be responsible. Um, basically, we would think of this as being a, a live-in nanny. Maybe we can put in our culture, but this would be someone who's a slave, who has a task. And as this 
uh, child is under the authority of this guardian, Galatians 3 verse 24, uh, this individual would always have to listen uh, to this guardian. And so this child may be a child, this child may be a rightful heir, but this child, in terms of his understanding, is not someone who is uh, so essential. Uh, because this child and the, sl- and the slave child, uh, while the child may be the heir of everything, the child really has no rights uh, that's different than the slave child. They both have to submit to this custodian. And so the, the child can think, you know, I'm the heir, I'm the righteous one. Well, it doesn't matter. At this point, this child is enslaved and under the authority and care of this custodian. Well, as the Apostle Paul goes on to develop his argument, building to 4 verse 4, he reminds us that as we are in Christ, we're Abraham's offspring. So you you can hear this say, oh, see, now we got the Apostle Paul. If we're Abraham's offspring, this means we ought to be circumcised, right? Because if we're circumcised, we're heirs according to the promise. Therefore, uh, what we're teaching is absolutely right. Well, as Paul goes on in 4 verse 1, and basically going through verses 1 through 3, leading up to verse 4, he first states, well, listen, as I, you know, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Might own everything, might be the rightful son, but you know what? He has no legal rights. In terms of that child and a slave child in that household, they have the same functional authority. Not one's better than the other. Child can't pull rank. Child has to listen to the custodian because as we mentioned last time under Roman law, if this child acts up, shows himself not to be a good child, could be executed, could be removed from the home, and maybe that slave child could all of a sudden be adopted and take the place of the son. So you can understand, as a son, you're not going to rebel. Uh, If you know you're the heir, you want to be a faithful and good heir. But whatever the case, a child may claim to own everything legally, no different than the slave. Going on, verse 2, as he's under the guardians and and managers, until the time set by the father. Now, this is an important legal uh, distinction because what would happen now is that this child would be raised by the slave until the father says, okay, you're mature. I'm going to basically groom you myself to be the the, the son that, that continues the legacy of this household. You're no longer under the authority of that slave. You're on your own two feet. And so it's important to understand there is a moment, a time, a date where you have under the slave's authority and then under the father's authority. That's how he's building the argument up to now. Verse 3 is something that becomes a, a little challenging to understand exactly what the Apostle Paul means. Um, when he says in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Because now it seems he's taking this, this weird, logical, non-sequitur stance. We've just talked about the legality of, of slave, uh, son, and now all of a sudden he talks about the elementary principles of the world. Well, just to cut to the chase and to get what the Apostle Paul is not saying is that the law of God is optional. So he's not saying that, you know, in Ten Commandments, just pick the one you want. But what the Apostle Paul is saying, as he goes on in Galatians 5, Galatians 4, as he goes on with the example of Hagar and Sarah, 
If we're going to take the Mosaic arrangement, which is what the Judaizers are ultimately doing, so they can appeal to Abraham, but they're really taking the regulations of the Mosaic arrangement and saying, this is how you ought to live. The Apostle Paul is saying, actually, when people come to you placing this requirement to you as a Gentile believer, saying this is what you're obligated to do, it's just like the superstitious principles of the world. So Paul's not an antinomian here, meaning he's against the law. What Paul is saying is that if you're going to arbitrarily apply the Mosaic arrangement as the Judaizers are trying to do, he's saying you may as well go back to paganism uh, because that's about as close as it's going to get you to God. You're not going to arrive at, at the conclusion and goal of the Christian walk. And so when you're saying, well, just do circumcision, Paul's saying, wait a minute, let's think about the implications of this. So now you can understand verse 4 as we make this transition. But in the fullness of time. Now, as you can imagine, this is debated. Uh, some say fullness of time refers to the Pax Romana uh, when there's world peace. And so when the Lord, by his providence, makes world peace, that's the fullness of time. Well, if you put that in Galatians 4 verse 4, it doesn't fit with the context. Because the Apostle Paul has made the case that we're moving from an era of being under the slave guardian to being mature Christians. And so it's about a movement in terms of the church life, not in terms of just world history. Now, of course, by God's providence, he works out Pax Romana. We can make this argument from the Gospels, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. Another way, when we talk about uh, fullness of time, where we just say, well, it's just the proper time in covenant history. I think that's getting us closer. But I don't think that's still arriving at the fullness of what this argument is. Because what the Apostle Paul wants us to understand is that with Christ's entrance into history, we are removed from the guardianship and slavery of what we've seen with the Mosaic Law. So the Mosaic order he's seeing as that slave, that, um, that way of basically bringing us to maturity, showing us, teaching us, instructing us about sin, instructing us about purity, having all these case laws, all these complicated things in terms of, well, if you have this boil, uh, you need to go to the priest and you can't be in the assembly for X amount of days and this needs to be applied. You commit this sin, you're executed, Here's a sanction for that. And so you can see that, that there's very much just a detailed application as to how we are to live. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, if you want to go back under that, you're not understanding what has transpired. We have moved from this guardianship to now a maturity. That's what the Apostle Paul wants us to understand. So the fullness of time is referring to this time when the father would come to his son and say, listen, you were under the guardian, now you're my son. You're under my authority. You're no longer under the authority of that slave. You are seen and you're being groomed as an heir of this household. That's where the apostle Paul's moving us. And he's saying to us as Christians, understand this time of maturity. Understand what it means to be adopted as children. This isn't just a free-for-all and do whatever we want. It's still understanding what we learned last week about adoption. One of the things of being the heir of the household means the priorities of the father become the son's priority. 
And so you can understand how this transfers over to Christianity. You know, the Father's priority, our Heavenly Father, Christ's priorities, what, what He would have us do, becomes our priority. Now, before we, we get too full of ourselves and we think, oh, well, I've moved from that old epoch to now a new time, and here I am as a mature individual, and I'm far superior to those Old Testament people. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand how this happened. And this is an important thing to remember. Because again, when people try and take apart the incarnation of Christ, or if people want to say, well, I think Christ is a great teacher, but his work really isn't that essential. The Apostle Paul's telling us Christ's work is absolutely essential. And it's absolutely essential that Christ is the one who takes on the flesh. Because Christ is the one who enters history. And so as he sends forth his son, born of a woman. So the Apostle Paul wants us to understand what was promised, Genesis 3.15, Christ has entered into history to do. And we say, well, what is the purpose of that? Well, he's born under the law. So Christ is the one who takes a burden, the yoke, of the very uh, particulars of the law of God. He's born under one of a sentence of condemnation. And why? To redeem those who are under the curse of the law. So to redeem us. Those who are destined to death. And what's the outcome of this? Well, the outcome is that we receive the status of adoption. And so there you see the logic from Galatians 3.23 going on to 4 basically 4 verse 7, um, you can continue on, you could argue to 4 verse 20, but whatever the case, the logic of what's going on, of moving from those who are under the slave to those who are now seen as the adopted sons. So we need to see ourselves as a father who has come to us, he's taken us, and he said, I've removed you from the authority of the, of the guardian, of the slave, now you're under my authority. As you were being instructed and as you read and, and you hear of these requirements that have been made under the, you know, under the slave and the guardian and what he has taught you, now he expects you to live this out as mature sons, doing this out of gratitude, doing this as my redeemed. And so when we understand we're sons of God, he wants us to understand we're not a slave. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing in a brilliant way is he's saying, listen, these individuals coming to you, trying to bring you back under the guardianship that they're putting you under, they're not setting you free. They're putting you under a slave. They're not bringing you to the maturity that God intended. They're enslaving you under the reality of what was back then that served its purpose, as the Apostle Paul will go on to talk about the difference of Hagar and Sarah and using that analogy of what we have of the and the woman uh, who had the son born uh, by the promise. And so the point of this then is that it's teaching us that we're not just living any way we want, as some may take this to be. Clearly, as we read from the fruits of the Spirit this morning, clearly the Apostle Paul desires for us and exhorts us to bring forth these things that are consistent with who we are in Christ. But we're doing this as mature individuals. We're doing this as those who are joined to Christ. We're not doing this as slaves to God who live in tyranny of a harsh taskmaster. But we're doing this under a gracious Father who has sent forth His Son to redeem, to take away our sins, give us new life, 
And as he gives us new life, uh, exhorts us then to live out and to make the priorities of the heavenly kingdom our very priorities as mature people. And so then we return to that question. Is the incarnation of Christ really something that's so important? Is it so important that we say Christ took on the flesh? Is it really that important that Christ is from all eternity? Well, the reality is, if Christ is not taken on the flesh, if he's not the God-man, as the catechism will go on to prosecute this point, then we're still in our sins. And if Christ is not moved from death to life, we're still in our sins. So these doctrines of a physical resurrection from the dead, it's not optional. This doctrine of Christ being from all eternity, it's not optional. Christ taking on a real human flesh, not optional. We have to affirm these things to have the truth of Christianity. This is why the catechism is laboring the point of saying we have to believe these truths. Now it's not true because the catechism says so, but it's true because it's essential to the New Testament, Old Testament scriptures theology. And the catechism is rightly discerning and teaching this truth. And so the Apostle Paul is making very clear, if Christ does not take on the flesh and enter history, do the work of the Father, we are still under the curse, the curse of the law. We're still under the guardian. It means we are not going to enter into heaven. That's how essential the incarnation of Christ is. That's why the resurrection of Christ is so essential. Because it's the Father overturning the earthly courts and declaring that Christ's work truly is sufficient and complete. And so when we hear the fullness of time, as the Apostle Paul instructs us, let us see it as a time when we move from being under the guardian to a time of being moved to mature Christians, to being those who are now set apart in Christ, redeemed in Christ, again, not uh, some moral free-for-all, but a call for us to discern, as the Apostle Paul says, discern what is pleasing unto the Lord, a call for us to desire to live this out because we have been redeemed, given new life, regenerated in the power of the Spirit, and set apart as his children as co-heirs in the heavenly inheritance. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.